January 2nd, 2011. VGN Radio presents Kevin's Old Blast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. So, and another request, I actually had multiple requests for this one, um, which I do appreciate everybody being so interested in hearing my opinion on stuff. It's kind of nice. It's uh, uh, <clears throat> cool that people are into the show and, you know, want to hear what, you know, I have to say. You know, Oblast, if you've never listened to it before, generally this show is um, where I kind of talk about a topic and uh, discuss some of the issues revolving around the topic and some ideas and uh, some opinion that I put into it. Uh, But it's not really here to be um, an exact resource. I mean, I realize that, you know, this is a podcast and if you've got this, you have the internet. And if you really wanted to find out, you know, the exact details of stuff, you could go out on the internet and you could search for it. So what I try to do is put it into a, in an entertaining format uh, where you can um, get a little bit of the information. And then, you know, when you want to find out more about it, you can go in and do some research and uh, look the stuff up yourself and, and find out more about it and find out the more specific things. Because, you know... For an hour show, regardless of whatever the topic is, unless it's my personal life, um, you're really not going to be able to get all of the details unless you, you find stuff. But uh, by summarizing a lot of these things and putting it into more layman's terms, uh, which is something I tend to be pretty good at, it usually gets all the information out there that um, will get your wheels going and you can kind of find out more about it. In fact, one of the things that I've been complimented on in, in the in the computer world, since I'm a computer programmer, is being able to talk to people outside the computer world about what's actually going on with their computers and making it clear to them, uh, especially like management, when you're talking about you know higher level things where um, software development and programming is concerned, it's very difficult for them to uh, grasp what it is everybody's doing. And so I was always able to be able to go in and just you know say, look, this is what we're doing, you know, I can dumb it down really simple and make it, you know, um, as intelligent or less intelligent as you want it to be. And I think that that's just something that I've always been rather good at. I don't know why that is, but I mean, I do know that I've worked with lots of really smart, smart programmers. And I think that the problem is with them is they can't get it, you know, they're not exposed or something to people that don't get them, or whatever it is, you know, they just can't explain it, (laughs) you know, into something that is smaller and and, and compartmentalized in a way that, you know, people can absorb it, and so, I don't know, something I've always been really good at. So anyway, so this one we're going to talk about is the economic collapse that happened uh, starting in 2007, and uh, still going on today, and I've kind of, you know, had a lot of requests for this and it's kind of a it's kind of a broad topic because it's still going on right so it you can't be too uh, predictive on what's going to happen with it it's it's sort of one of these things where there's a lot of pieces in play and anything can go anything can happen but i thought about it and i figured well i think some of the people that are requesting it are are asking um for what exactly happened, and in in a, in a layman's term, and then there's people that are asking and saying, you know, what do you think this is going to lead to? And I think I'll try to cover both of those, um, but you know, uh, 
we'll see how long the show goes, and and then I'll determine if it's going to be a one show or a two show thing. But basically, what what okay, what led to this situation is a uh, in, 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 well, okay. It's complicated. There, there's a lot of complicated things, but when we talk about the economic collapse of 2007, um, there was a number of factors that, that went into play. And there's also a, a government problem in, in the country, okay? And I think I want to touch on that quickly first, all right? Um, when George Bush was president, uh, before he you know got into office... Uh, there was a surplus of money. Basically, even though Bill Clinton was a Democrat, he was fiscally very conservative. He he controlled the 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 coffers of the White House with an iron fist. He didn't act like a normal Democrat historically. He made it so everything you know was was just clamped down, and tax rates were higher back then. Okay. And uh, in some cases, kind of high for everyone. And there was a surplus of cash. Basically, they had figured out that you know the deficit was gone, and that the government was actually, you know, bringing in more money than it was spending. And you know, to understand all this, it's, it really has to do with the numbers. Okay, you know, it's not like there's a a mailing house or a bank or something where cash just shows up and somebody goes, what's this? Well, that's all the extra cash you earned this, this month or something. It just doesn't work like that. Basically, you know, they, they, they look at all the, you know, the numbers and the, and the figures and everything. And they say, well, this is our tax rate. This is our, you know, our growth rate. This is what we're making right now on revenue. This is what we're spending. So we should be having this much money. So what happened was George Bush came into office and he uh, gave a tax cut, okay, to everyone. And to be fair to George Bush, which a lot of people aren't, uh, revenue did grow. So even though he gave a tax cut, there was this boost in revenue as well because the growth in the country at the time was booming. And so, um, you know, it, it looked like for a while there that that whole policy was really kind of rocking and Alan Greenspan was the man and all this sort of stuff, and the country was doing really well, and Congress had, um, between Clinton and Bush, and uh, probably before them, you know, uh, they had basically eased up a lot of restrictions on business, and allowed businesses to basically police themselves. The free market system was one to which they said, let's get rid of the regulation, and let's just go ahead and allow these people to go ahead and, and regulate themselves. But one of the problems, okay, is that while the country had a surplus, and while we didn't have a deficit anymore, the medical crisis, okay, hadn't really been paid too much attention to. Um, it wasn't that medical expenses were in check, they were going up, all, you know, all the time for everyone. It's just that the politicians just weren't thinking about it at the time. You know, Hillary Clinton had come in during Clinton. She tried to get, you know, medical care for for people, you know, under Bill Clinton and all this. And, you know, it was a it was just dead in the water. 
You know, Americans were like, I don't want to have to go through the government to get my health care. You know, I like the system just the way it is. And, you know, it, it was a failure, I think, of the Clintons to explain to people that they're, that the people that are happy with the way it is aren't going to have medical coverage soon. You know, it was just too, it was just too far away, especially when you have surpluses to be able to sit there and say, hey, well, you know, the government's going to be out of money because we can't pay for all this stuff that we've promised you. And uh, George Bush then signed uh, into law the, um, which was a huge mistake, the prescription drug benefit um, bill in, in, and uh, made that into a law, which um, started to protect seniors for all of their prescription drugs rather than them paying for their own insurance on this stuff. And um, they had created a, a bill which didn't allow the government to negotiate prices, which is insane, and uh, couldn't use them as like a group purchase thing or anything. So the government just had to pay like full price for all the medications for all the seniors, and that bill was signed into law. It's one of the worst bills ever. I mean, everybody will tell you, in both sides, Republicans, Democrats, the worst bill should never have been signed into law. Horrible in a system that was already broken. Now, because, you know, shortly after George Bush got in the office, you know, you had this 9-11 thing that take place, and we end up going to war with Afghanistan, and then probably, um, you know, arguably should probably have not have gone into war in Iraq, but we did. For better or for worse, I don't know. I mean, you can't go back. You can't say what would have happened if Saddam Hussein would have been left in power. You know, you don't know. Um, you know, is it going to be the right thing at this point? We don't know. You know, we've left Iraq at this point. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do a piece on Iraq right now. But anyway, you know, we've spent you know a huge amount of money uh, going into Afghanistan and going into Iraq um, in order to. Uh, pay for all of these wars, um, the, the money just, you know, was getting just sucked out of the system, and then you had to pay for these medical benefits that kept growing and growing and growing. So, now, okay, you have this situation where the government is basically broke, and we spend more money than we bring in. The government brings in money every year. And we don't have enough. So we have to go and we sell bonds to other countries, like the Chinese, you hear about them a lot, but there's other countries too, Russia and Japan, all sorts of places, buy our, buy our bonds. And they buy their, the bonds, and that's like a loan for us. And we go out and then take the extra money, and uh, we actually use some of that money to pay off the bonds that um, uh, people borrowed on interest rates, as well as, uh, you know, invest in other things in the country. Well, now, obviously that's terrible, okay? And you would say to yourself, well, how, you know, why do we do that? You know, because that's obviously not a sustainable situation. You can't just keep borrowing money. You have to get more money. You have to get more money, you know, you can't just borrow money. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody knows it, Okay. Government's a weird thing. <coughs> There's a f- because you can you can change the numbers around many different ways in order to make it so you have more money now, and maybe you won't have as much money later on. And politicians are usually more interested in quick fixes than they are in long term fixes. So 
Democrats are, are always saying, well, look, why don't we, you know, we, we looked at the Bush tax cut and we say, hey, you know, maybe that was a bad idea. Maybe the wealthy people, the people that make over a million dollars, should have no tax cut, but let the middle class and the, the um, you know, the poor or whatever, probably don't pay much taxes, but the middle class keep their tax cut, but let's let the tax cut on the wealthy go back to the way it was under Clinton. That will generate more revenue for the government. And the Republicans counter and they say, look, we think that the government is spending too much money on non-essential things and we should just cut some things in order to make it so the government is smaller rather than taxing businesses and people more why don't we just go ahead and reduce the size of the government by canceling some programs? Okay. All right. Now, this has been going on forever between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's, this isn't new. This isn't like something that just happened. This has been going on for, you know, 50 years or something. I have no idea. I'm not old enough to even know how long it's been going on between the one side that wants to raise the taxes and the other side that wants to reduce the taxes and cut the spending and the other one wants to create new programs. Okay, but the problem is, is that these days the country's broke. Okay? <laughs> and we have this crisis because the Medicare, okay, your, your old people are retiring and they're on Medicare and because after World War II they had a whole bunch of kids after World War II had the baby boom, we're going to have more seniors pulling checks than there are people my age contributing into the system. Which means that they're going to pull more money out than we're able to even put in. Period. So you have to do both. Everybody knows Everybody knows that you have to do both. You have to cut spending and you have to raise taxes. But neither party wants to give on that. I mean, it's like, uh, it's, it's a constant, constant problem. So there's just this constant tweaking going on. Now, that battle hasn't been figured out yet. It's still going on. To the person that's listening right now, big crisis probably starts at around 2030, okay? Um, I'm, like, going to be 40 soon, okay? I figure I'll probably retire about 70. Uh, you know, right now, the retirement age is 65. By the time I get up to that age, it's probably going to be closer to 70. And so, the thing is, is that, you know, I have my bionic arm and fucking robot eyes and everything at that point, but um, <laughs> the... Uh, but the problem is, okay, is that, um, you know, 2030, it's 2012 now, okay, so if I'm going to work 30 more years, I'm going to see 2030 before I retire. And a lot of you are probably around in the same boat if you do the math on when you're going to retire, and Social Security and Medicare are going to be out of money. Yay! The old people are screwing you. But I'm not going to get into why the old people are screwing you, but they are. Your grandparents and everybody else, they fucked you. Um... So, we're going to talk about, though, the economic collapse. But this is important to understand, that the government, out of money. Okay? So, now here's what happened with the economic collapse. Basically, if you wanted a mortgage on a home, you went into a bank, 
and you said, you know, I want to get this house. I've got, you know, some money to put down on down payment, and uh, I want to get a loan. And the bank says, okay, you got an 8% interest rate. You know, this is back then when interest rates were a little bit higher. 8% interest rate, there's some incentives, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And you say, oh, all right, great. You know, you go in, you say, I'm going to get a house, and it's going to have an 8% interest rate. And, you know, my uh, they looked at my my ability to make payments on this, this $300,000 house that I want to buy. And they said, you know, I need to make a... Uh, a pretty big house payment, but I, I can afford it, so I, I'm going to get myself a 30-year fixed uh, plan, which basically means I make the same payment every month for 30 years, and it never changes. Interest rate stays the same. And what the bank does is they take they take these mortgages, okay? They take your mortgage, they take the mortgage of the guy down the street, another mortgage, until they have a bunch of mortgages, and they wrap them all together into, into a security. That's what they call it. And what they do is, is they then sell it on the market because there's investors out there that say they you know they know that you're paying interest on this right so they know that this is basically a relatively uh, safe investment that's what they think because it's all these mortgages wrapped together sure maybe one guy's gonna default on his mortgage out of the hundred that are wrapped up together in this thing but overall that that security is going to make money it's going to grow and it's going to be it's going to be a, you know a pretty sure bet that most people are going to make their mortgage payments and that that security is going to you know do really good at the, its eight percent interest rate so the bank gets a certain amount of money for that i don't know how much i mean i don't know what it's worth or anything like that but you know they get money so they sell these things and a lot of people at home go oh i don't actually my the people that own my mortgage isn't uh pnc bank anymore it's some other company okay i had no idea but you just make your payments as usual to the people that handle your, you know, your payment, and you just send it off, and that's how it works. Okay. So, banks and the people in charge of them, okay, they have a couple of things. First of all, in order to like protect themselves from uh, potential fraud with this, um, they had what they call a credit default swap. And a credit default swap is basically like. It's kind of like insurance, okay? You basically say, I'm going to buy from, uh, you know, a financial institution, bank, or, but usually like an insurance company, uh, not an insurance company, but like, um, like a brokerage or something that you're basically saying, look, I'm going to, uh, I have this bundled up bunch of loans on here, and I, ba- I basically want a credit default swap in exchange for them. And you pay a premium on them on the credit default swap, just like you do insurance. And if one of the loans goes bad, you're going to get covered by the agreement in the credit default swap. Basically, you get the cash value of the loan, and the person that owns the credit default swap that you bought it from, uh, they get the bad loan from you. You you basically switch ownership of it. Okay, And it's not quite insurance, though, because it's not regulated. Okay, There's no regulation of this at all. And I'm going to explain why, just remember credit default swaps are like insurance, and I'm going to come back to that in a second, okay? Now, so what happens is, is that the bank takes this investment, and they sell it on the market, and then a bunch of investors and investment groups buy into them, and they buy all a bunch of them, and your 401k plan gets invested in them, and they're on the market, and the bank makes a pretty good buck. And they make their money based on the interest rate that the... 
security that you sold um, has on it. So if you had an 8% security, there's probably some market value for that. But if you had a higher interest rate, that would be worth even more. So what happened, okay, is that um, a lot of people wanted to buy houses. I mean, it's just a normal thing, okay? People want to buy a house. And they go to the bank and they say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about getting a house. And the um, bank says, well, how much are you looking to spend? And you say, well, you know, I'm looking to spend about uh, $300,000 for a house. And the bank says, okay, well, I'm looking at what you make right here. You know, I'm looking at your, I'm looking at your, uh, your wage. And it looks like you can only afford a house that costs $140,000 with an 8% interest rate. And they say, oh, well, that sucks. I really kind of wanted a house that, you know, was worth $200,000. And you're saying, I can't afford that. Because, you know, basically, if you've never bought a house, it's something like 35% of your pay is the most that you can use to pay for a house on a month monthly basis. That's your gross pay. So it, it's some statistic like that. I, I You know, if you're, going, if you're going to qualify for loans, usually there's some sort of limit. You can't just like say, I'm going to use 100% of my money and then I'm just going to live off the land or something to buy a house. Um, banks won't really do that for you. There's some regulations with that. And especially with FHA loans, I'm not going to get all into the specifics of this, okay? I'm trying to keep it dumbed down. But anyway, so, you know, you go and you say, well, you can't have $200,000. You won't make, you don't, you can't afford to make the payment on it. So all your expenses and everything. So tell me, um, you know, what, uh, you know, 140000 is is all you're going to get. Now the bank, the bank guy says, well, listen, we have this thing. It's called a, it's called a, a balloon payment. It's not a fixed 30 year payment. It's a balloon payment. And it's like, well, what's a balloon payment? Well, it's real simple, right? Basically, you start off and you get an interest rate of 4%. And you get that interest rate for like the first five years. Now listen, Hank, you're going to get a raise at your job, right? Do you, get an, do you get an annual raise? Oh yeah, I get an annual raise, sure. Okay, great. Well listen, Hank, this is real simple. You start off on the 5%, and then what happens is, is that after the five years, you go to a market rate. And the market rate can fluctuate. It can be as low as 3% or it could be as high as 20%. Right now it's at 8%. So, you know, you'll go from the 5%, you know, uh, to the 8%. And uh, that's, you know, after five years and five raises, at that point you probably will be able to afford the 8% that you can't afford today. And Hank goes, wow, that's great. So what does that mean? Well, that means we can get you like the two hundred thousand dollar loan. I mean, my math here isn't perfect, okay, but just bear with me. It's it's basically the same thing. So, Hank says, "Great, honey, great. Let's sign. Let's sign right here. Let's sign on the dotted line. Let's go ahead and get our house. It's our dream house. It's awesome. And look, we only have to pay the five percent. This is this is beautiful, okay. Now, the banks love it because the balloon payment has a potential interest rate of freaking twenty percent or thirty percent or whatever it is." So they can sell it on the market and say, look, we have these people and the criteria for them is excellent. They're going to be able to pay this uh, balloon payment and it's going to be like a you know a 20% interest rate. And the investors go, wow, that's fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, we're going to spend, we're going to sell it, you know, for huge money. 
So the banks start making it easier and easier and easier for people to qualify for these um, these balloon type payments. And these are people who, ha- you know, first time home buyers or people that are um, have no idea what they're doing, going in and getting a loan on something that initially they can afford for the first five years, which causes the nation to have a housing boom. I mean, everywhere you look, there's houses going up and there's, um, you know, giant estates being built and people you know are like, oh, look at our new house. And you go over and it's twice as big as the house you grew up in. And the guy works at like, you know, a drugstore or something. And you're like, the fuck do you afford this? You know? I mean, I've had friends. I mean, my friends. I mean, Larry, Don Cease, uh, Don Anderson, um, these people all had houses, okay? I mean, you've listened to the radio shows, you might be scratching your head. but and, and they may not have had these sorts of things. I mean, I don't know what their situation was. But, you know, I think some of them actually got nailed by this problem. And the problem is, is that after that five years comes, their home mortgage that they were paying, like, say, $1,000 a month on, uh, suddenly jumps up to $1,700 a month. And I'll tell you, man, when you take a you know a seven hundred dollar hit like that on your mortgage, you're just like, I can't afford this. I mean, it's just too much, and you start getting behind, right? And um, and the and the interest rate uh, goes up again, and you're you're busted. You you can't you can't afford it anymore. And there's nothing there's n- nothing you can do about it. You're just going to lose the house. So. You know, you just basically say, well, I'm fucked, you know, I guess I'm going to fucking lose my house, and I'm going to have to go belly up and, and be out. Now, the problem is, is that it was it was a pandemic, because you had a lot of people out buying multiple houses. You had people saying that the housing market was so great, and the interest rates were, were terrific, that they went out, and, and people were buying houses just to flip them. People would just go out and buy, you know, 10, 20 houses, these rich people, in order to flip them. And, and make money because every month it seemed like the housing market was just going up and up and up because the banks were making the loans easier and easier and easier to get. So, what happens is that the is that the people start to lose their houses, okay? And at first, it's like um, you know a little bit of a a little bit of an issue, okay? Now. Pause there for a minute. But the banks have insurance, or what they want to call insurance. Basically what they call a credit default swap. So, if the cease residence defaults on their mortgage on their house, okay, the guy that, you know, has the credit default swap that sold it to the guy that owns the, the, the bundled securities, the bank goes in and they pull out the money that, and they give it to them to cover this loss. Okay? Well, that's fine. However, we had a problem in this country where we had so many defaults happening so quickly that the banks didn't have enough cash on hand to cover the credit default swaps. Okay, so it means basically that you're, 
you're you own all these bundled securities. You own all these loans from all these mortgages. Okay, and now twenty five percent of them just went bad. So twenty five mortgages went bad. Let's just say it's like two point five million dollars. Okay, so just one security, two point five million dollars. One one security you own. So you go to Lehman Brothers or you go to um, any of these companies that were around. Okay, you know Wells Fargo or. Um, Gold, you know, Sat, Goldman, and anyway, I can't, I can't think of all of them, but you've heard them, okay? And you go in and you say, "Listen, man, my securities are bad. It's time for pay up. You guys owe me the money for the credit default swap. This is it. You got to give me the money." They didn't have any. They didn't have any more money. They didn't have enough to cover this, and so they go to the government. And they say to Paulson, and they say, look, um, you know, we're fucked. We, we don't have enough money. So so Paulson, who's in charge of the Fed, okay, Federal Reserve, the, the basically the, the government institution that controls, you know, the, the wealth of the country, if you want to say that much. And he calls all these people around, and he says, look, what, you, you, we got to, you, you, people got to fix this freaking problem, okay? And they're like, well, all our money's loaned out. Okay, it's not that Lehman or Bank of America or Citigroup or um, Wells Fargo and stuff didn't really have the money. Okay, they just they're banks and they just loaned all the money out. You know, they don't. They never thought that they would ever have to pay like you know billions and billions of dollars in these credit default swaps. They figured they would just have the usual one or two here or there that would default, and they would be able to cover it because the banks were only holding about 5% of their uh, money in reserve, meaning cash. Okay, so if you're a bank that has, like, say, I don't know, $100 billion, you're a $100 billion bank, okay? So you have $5 billion in cash, and you have... The other $95 billion out on loan making money, because that's what banks do. You know, they loan the money out and hope that it comes back, and you know, on investments and everything else. But they had these really low, really low leverage in the bank, just 5%. And um, the government allowed that to happen, because during the Bush and Clinton years, they allowed these regulations to go away. That enabled the banks to, you know, hold on to less and less money. So they only had 5%, and they had these credit default swaps, which weren't regulated. Nobody ever said, you know, hey, you've got $2 trillion in uh, credit default swaps out there, and you only have $5 billion in the bank. That's, you know, you don't have enough to cover all these. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Ha, ha, ha. What's going to happen? I mean... You know, nobody cares because it's all middle management anyway, and everybody wants to just make money. So, now, what happens is that, you know, the the cease mortgage basically goes tits up, and the guy that owns the cease mortgage, his credit default swap's not there. So now that investment is worth, you know, much less than it was. You just took that, that hit, 25% of all his mortgages in that security just got annihilated. And the value of that security just got just plummeted. Now, a few different things went on here. Okay, 
first of all, all of everybody's 401k investments, pension investments, um, company investments, stock investments, everything that was invested in these mortgages, which was everybody, everybody was invested in these mortgages, okay, um, lost a ton of money because all these investments just became valueless because the mortgages didn't have any, you know, the deceased family couldn't pay for theirs, the insurance on it is basically non-existent, and so it just went away. The money's just gone. Poof. You know, the investment that people purchased is gone. Now, it's a tricky thing, because really what happens, you know, is that the bank ended up getting the money for the for the loan from the sale of the security, and the bank then reinvested that money. So the banks themselves, they it's a little sketchy, okay? But I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that later. Okay. Now, Paulson pulls everybody into the office, and he says, listen, we got to obviously fix this. And they said, well, we're going to have to go to Congress, and we're going to have to ask Congress for a lot of money. We're going to have to go to Congress and ask them for a lot of money in order to fix this. Now, now, nowadays, you're hearing all about how Obama, uh, you know, got a trillion dollars and spent all this money. This happened under Bush, okay? Obama's trillion dollars was the kickstart to the economy thing. That's a whole other thing. I'm not even going to talk about it, okay? This is still George Bush. George Bush and Congress, okay, Congress, it was the Republican Congress, um, said, okay, we're going to go ahead and give you basically a blank check to go ahead, like like a trillion dollars, to go ahead and uh, um, bail out these banks. Now, the American people are fucking furious. They're like, bullshit, fuck that. My fucking insurance is fucking... my." Retirement insurance is gone. My four hundred one k's in the toilet. These motherfuckers, they fucking, they fucked up, and they should lose their fucking job and their business should shut the fuck down. Fuck them. Okay. Now, <laughs> the problem with that, obviously, is that more and more of these mortgages are defaulting, and if the banks don't get the money to cover the credit default swaps, okay, then people's 401ks would be down to nothing. Businesses would, their investments would be wiped out. Everybody would be wiped out. The whole country would just be like, just, the the whole value of the country would have just plummeted into nothingness, okay? However, it is we the people, and, uh, you know, what happened was Lehman, you know, was going under, and Paulson basically said, um, you know, I can't go to Congress and ask Congress for any more money. Congress is not going to save anything because the people are pissed, and they're not going to put up with it. So they had, didn't have a choice. They had to let Lehman Brothers fall. And when Lehman Brothers fall, fell, it created a huge panic in the market because it suddenly became apparent that the American financial system was not going to back up and insure its own banks. So that everybody freaked the fuck out. Because everybody knew, if you're in Wall Street, that all of these guys were over-leveraged. Every bank was over-leveraged, and every bank had um, 
you know, not enough money to cover all their bases. And the government, the United States government, just said, we're going to let all those banks collapse. So everybody started pulling all their money out. It was like boom, 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 and all of the bonds and the junk bonds and everything just crashed, just crashed fucking hard. And nobody was going to loan anybody any money. The whole market just froze up because nobody trusted anybody. And nobody was going to give anybody any money because they wanted to see who the next guy was going to fall, the next domino. And that's when the trillion dollars comes into play because they had to go in and take the money and put it into these banks and say, this bank is not going to fall. We're not going to let it go down. But meanwhile, you know, you've got the auto companies and, and, and uh, little businesses and all over America and everything going out of business because the economy's wrecked and nobody has any money anymore. I mean, the value of everything had just plummeted. And, and businesses just didn't have any investment money. They couldn't get loans or nothing because the whole thing is frozen. Okay? So, so, the, so the Fed takes this trillion dollars and they start putting it into these, um, these businesses in order to, you know, basically keep them alive and cover their credit default swaps and, you know, the, the mortgage companies like Fannie and Freddie and everything that basically handle all of the FHA loans and all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they had to go in there and say, you know, basically that the government went in and bought all the bad loans. They bought all the bad loans and said, you know, we're going to buy all these these uh, uh, these credit default swaps. Basically, then the government didn't get control of any of the any of the actual papers. They just ended up pouring all their money into this. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of people are angry about that, but from the bank's point of view, okay. All of that money, basically, has been paid back in the, because the banks never really lost any of their money on this. Like, think about it. Your, let's say, your Citigroup, okay? And you have loaned out 95% of your money into investments, okay? And you have 5% money left over. Now, your credit default swaps all come in, and they're all due. They're all due, and they come in, and the United States government steps in, and it covers all of those for you. It basically says, we're going to cover all those for you. Okay? Well, okay, then it's great to be Citigroup because you made all the money on all of the premiums on the credit default swaps, plus all your investments at 95% are coming back in. Okay? And the government has basically taken and eaten all of your bad mortgages for you. So now, you know, all you have to do is pay them back for all that, and your money comes pouring in. So Citigroup gets tons and tons of cash in, they pay the government off, and they just rake in billions and billions of dollars more, you know, and they, they do these stock offerings and stuff and flip it, and all of these you know all of these big banks, the big banks, end up paying off the government. The little banks don't, because the little banks went under. They can't do anything. They don't have enough investments out there. And what happens is when the little bank says, well, I, I'm too, you know, I'm, I don't have enough. Can you help me? The government steps in and says, no, we're just going to close your bank down. We're just going to close down your mom-and-pop bank because you don't have enough money. But if, you're, but if you're like, you know, Bank of America, you're too big to fail. So we can't let you fail because it'll crush the American people. So we're just going to take the bullet for you. Then you just pay us back, and then you can go ahead and make your, make your money. Bank of America, though, they've got other problems. They're a bad example. But for the most part, this is what's happened with all the banks that have survived. The ones that have survived have managed to buy the weaker banks, consolidate, grow, and become, you know, much larger than they even were before. Now, 
Meanwhile, okay, you have this situation where the rest of the country has lost all of this value and all of this cash. All of the cash, that 95% that the banks were basically putting out there for everybody to invest in all kinds of silly things, um, is gone away. It's washed out. It's, it's history. Okay, and one of the reasons why is because the banks decided that they will just hoard cash because there's no good investments for them. It's like they used to have something that returned up to 20% on their, you know, on their books, and now they have to go back to market rate and the volatility of the stock market. And, you know, for the most part, it's not very, um, it's too risky. It's too risky, and so they've basically have just been collecting the cash, and there's no real penalty for it, because the interest rates are so low anyway, they can't really make a whole lot of money on loaning the money out. So the banks are holding on to something like $2 trillion right now, okay? They're just sitting on it, and it's in the bank. And now our government sits there, and they say, well, how do we get that money out of the bank, okay, and back into the system. And nobody's quite figured that problem out yet. It's it's not so it's not so straightforward. Nobody really knows. Now, the bank sits pretty because look, you know, you're the C's family, you give up, you know, your house and you lose the mortgage. Well, all those mortgage payments that the C's family family paid for all those years, right? The bank got all those payments and then at the end of the day they get C's house. So they, they they have a house, and they have all of Cease's old payments. Cease ends up with nothing. He goes off to live in an apartment somewhere. And the bank has a house and all the money. So the bank sits pretty, really. The bank sits pretty, except that, well, damn, there's too many houses out there now. There's too many houses, and there's not enough buyers. And so, you know, the banks face this problem of having whole streets and neighborhoods of empty houses you know, diminish value because they basically don't have uh, the people that are able to pay for those houses anymore because they can't fix the mortgages to the rates anymore that they could afford to buy those houses in the first place. So now the houses end up becoming undervalued. But here, you know, the rub is with this is that you're probably thinking in your head, well, Maybe if the houses aren't worth enough, maybe if they, like, subtract, you know, the houses keep depreciating in value, that eventually that $200,000 house becomes a $140,000 house, and then that family can move into that house. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that cities don't want the houses to fall that to that rate. Because that's how they generate their tax revenue. That's how they fund their schools and their government and everything else. So, you know, if they keep the prices of the houses high, right, the banks want it to be high because they want to sell it for that price. And the city wants it to be high because they want to collect the tax money on that price. So they basically do a lot of fixing and switching and moving and, you know, leaving people in and doing all sorts of stuff in order to make it so those people will stay, or those houses will stay up in value. That's what they're trying to do. Obviously, in the inner cities like Detroit, here in Cleveland, and other places in the in the Rust Belt, that's not really working. And probably out in California, where they built way too many houses, and out in Las Vegas, assuredly, that's not happening either. More houses than there are people that can afford them. And you know what the funny thing is, is that it's not really about having more houses. It's, it's just, the cost of the house is too much. The, you know, 
It used to, if you, you go around through old neighborhoods, you drive through old neighborhoods, and houses are much smaller. I mean, there's just like, you know, house after house, because during like the 60s and probably the 50s and things, people had a modest size, smaller house, and they could afford it, you know? They had a yard and a driveway, and it was a single car family and that kind of thing. And, you know, Americans had this big taste of uh, living the high life, basically, of being able to own, like, you know, houses that are hundreds of thousands of dollars more than the wage that they have, and uh, we're trying to capture, you know, the American dream, but ultimately not being realistic in order to afford it. Now, frankly, I think that, you know, houses are probably overpriced in general. I mean, you know, a house isn't, you know, a big thing. It's going to be the biggest purchase that you make in your life. But at the same time, it's just wood and, and drywall and wiring and things. And, you know, is it really worth 300 and some thousand dollars to build it? No. And that's why there's a big money in construction. You know, it probably only costs fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 to build the house with everything. And the rest of it's just like pure profit. You know, of course, the land is worth, you got to have the, the land itself is worth you know, a quarter of the value of the house or a third or something, you know. So, anyway, so you have this, you have this problem. Now, um, what's going on with it right now is basically that the, um, the Fed has been trying to, um, force the banks to, um, use their money. And the banks basically are very resistant to, um, you know, just pouring money out into anything because look what's happened to them. They did it before and they almost, you know, some of the banks went out of business and everything. So they're they're not looking forward to just you know, pouring their money out into nothing. And at the same time, the government is concerned because the banks are sitting on $2 trillion and when they do start to loan their money out, okay, then there will be rapid inflation because there will be more money than... Um, you know, people can handle, and then all of a sudden you have a situation where everything's prices start to jump up really high, and we end up, you know, being screwed all over again. So, you know, one of the things you may hear about is quantitative easing, which is uh, QE and QE2, and they talk about doing a QE3, which may still happen, we're not sure. And sometimes people call it, basically they, they liken it to printing money. It's not really printing money, but people say that that's what it is. It's not what it is. We don't really print money. Um, quantitative easing is a, is basically um, like softening the value of the dollar. It's basically saying we're going to make the dollar worth less. Okay, this is the simple layman's terms to understand it. Okay, if a dollar was worth a dollar today... You know, as quantitative easing happens, the dollar's worth 95 cents, okay? Now, the reason the government does this is partially through market manipulation, okay? It's a way of saying to foreign investors that um, their products are way too cheap. And, you know, we're, our economy's getting crushed because, you know, the U.S. dollar can buy a lot of Chinese imports and, you know... Our money is way too strong. And why is it so strong? It's because they buy our money in order to artificially inflate it against their own dollars. And so they have these investments and they raise the value of our money and make the U.S. dollar strong. So by doing quantitative easing, we lower the value of our money just slightly. I mean, these sorts of things are very like, you know, it's... 
I get, you can't even get into the math on it because it's just it's ugh, it's so you know beyond anything with the exchange rates and you know uh, the the dollar every day fluctuates anyway, so it's hard to know you know what sort of thing is really happening here. But what does happen, okay, is that if you're like say Bank of America and you're sitting on a hundred billion dollars in the bank instead of the usual five billion. Okay, then by just sitting on that money, with the interest rates being near zero and all this sort of stuff, when the government does quantitative easing, they're basically saying, "Well, now your hundred your hundred billion is going to be worth ninety five billion, effectively." In a global economy, it hurts a big bank like that. So the bank needs to get their money out of cash and put it into investments because investments don't take the hit like that. So that's one way that they're trying to do it. Some other things, you know, they've talked about doing penalties and, and making it so if a bank has more than 30% in, um, in, in cash that they end up having to make a, um, they have to make a, they, they have to pay a penalty, these sorts of things. The problem is, though, is that the financial lobby is too strong. And they're, they're simply able to go in and, you know, shut down anything that happens. I mean, the bank lobby is just, you know, ridiculously powerful and they get whatever they want, and it's just, you know, none of the things that that created the problems that we have today have been fixed. Okay, that's the thing that, you know, people have to understand. The credit default swap problem, the lack of oversight, the um, the securities things, the banks uh, tricking people with the foreclosures, uh, loaning out things to people... There's absolutely nothing has been changed to make it so this can't happen again. The only you know kind of hope that you have is that the bank that buys the credit default swap looks into the company a little bit better and says, you know, can you really back up these credit default swaps when we purchase them from you? I mean, you kind of hope that they now realize that that's kind of important, you know, that they do that. So, meanwhile, okay, the average American's wealth has plummeted because most people's value that, you know, that was in their home, all right, and then in their retirement plan, and uh, those things have gone away. And many, many jobs have gone away, and the people entering the job market in the United States is growing uh, quicker than the number of jobs that are being created since 2007. So every week that goes by, there's people entering the job market, graduating college or um, getting out of high school, and there are less jobs available to them. And, you know, every time you hear about, oh, well, they created 200,000 jobs this year, you need to create about 350,000 jobs to really sort of uh, start to turn the page on this every month. And we don't even get near that. So um, you're, you're getting, you know, you're, you're seeing these 99% and things like that appear, and these are the same things that, that appeared in uh, the Middle East. But, you know, the unemployment rate's not high enough here in the United States to have a real sort of um, major outcry yet. Uh, it's just one of those things that it's not that bad yet. It's, it's not great. But it's not that bad. It's like one of these things where, you know, um, 
if you get out of college, you can't get a job, you can go home and live with your folks and live with them for the next five years or whatever. You work some odds and ends jobs and that kind of thing. Or, or women, you know, they don't end up getting a job. They just get married and they have a kid and stuff like that. But I'll tell you, you know, from a personal standpoint, looking at the financial condition of the people that I know, I would say that things have been pretty bad and um you know i don't see too much in the way of things being offset anytime soon there doesn't seem to be any sort of um major going on so look if you go back and you look at the the history of the country for a moment you you sit there and you say to yourself well you know we used to we had a big space program right we launched people up into the moon. We fought wars. We built a super highway system going across the country. We used to build giant buildings, like, you know, um, all the time in major cities. Not just New York, okay, but lots of cities had big buildings being put in. Um, we used to have uh, all sorts of bridges and, and um, just giant infrastructure happening all the time in this country. And major, major projects going on. And, you know, over the years, you know, unless it's private, privately owned, I mean, you don't really hear about us building or doing anything anymore. And the reason is, is because all of the money in government is going towards paying Medicare and Social Security. About half the money that we bring in, a little over half now, goes to just covering Medicare and Social Security. So the government doesn't have enough money to basically do anything. It's paralyzed. It's paralyzed, and our officials are incapable of fixing this problem appropriately. I think, I think most Americans don't want to pay more taxes, and most Americans want things to be cut. Uh, you know, I for one think that our military is too big. I think that we should have a strong military. I'm not against that. But it's so freaking large right now against threats that are basically non-existent. I mean, how does every other country in the world get on, you know, without being invaded and taken over, when they have militaries that are tiny compared to ours? I don't know what the threat is, except that we have this institutionalized system where manufacturers of tanks and weapons and planes build parts in every community across the United States so every representative and congressman has some sort of, you know, hand in the cookie jar in order to want to keep these jobs going. You know, 40% of the people in the United States are either employed by government or contracted out by, you know, a private, private thing to work for government. So... We have this problem where we, we spend, you know, huge amounts of money building 11 aircraft carriers, something I always go on about, but, you know, and then we send our guys into war, right? We've got tanks, and we've got, you know, all kinds of strike capability, and we build stealth fighters, and we've got F-16s and F-22 Raptors and stuff, and we send our guys in in fucking Humvees, man, that aren't even armored up, you know? Because it costs too much to send in the other shit. We bought all the other shit, right? 
But we don't really want to send all that shit in because, goddamn, man, it costs a lot of money to fucking drive a tank around all day. It's a lot cheaper to have the boys move people back and forth in the Humvee. And you're like, okay, finally we got these new trucks that can take a bomb blast, you know, and save some lives. But it's not really the point, you know. It's like we just kind of go into the war that we pay for and, you know, we're flying like a robotic air, like a model airplane around with missiles attached to it and striking targets out in some place. We're not even sure where we're hitting half the time. We're constantly going on the news and being like, oops, sorry, we didn't mean to kill your wedding party. And, um, it, it's, you know, it's fucked up. It's, it's fucked up, and we're spending huge amounts of money on things that, um, militarily, that probably we could, we could, um, we could retract some of it. I'm not for, like, the Ron Paul system of bringing them all home and closing bases and, um, you know, like Okinawa or Germany and things and taking us all back to the way we were because, uh, you know, there's certain leverage that we gain by having these sorts of relationships with people, you know, and, um, when you take away that leverage, it, it makes it more difficult to get certain things done. I mean, there's there's reasons for having things, and probably running these bases and doing some of these things doesn't really cost us that much. I mean, if you've got an aircraft carrier and you're driving it around, it's probably a good idea to have a base in the South Pacific somewhere so you can fuel it up. But my point is, do you need 11 of them? Do you need 11 active aircraft carriers? Really? I mean, for what? I, look, Take half of them away. You can have five. That's more than anybody else has. And, you know, it's like, who are we going to fight with five aircraft carriers? I don't even think the Battle of Midway had five aircraft carriers. Well, I don't understand why we need 11 of them. I just don't. I don't get it. I mean, you know, if somebody's in the Navy and they want to write in and tell me what it is that, you know, we need to have such an extreme amount of force, you know, I mean, like, we have... We have Boomer nuclear submarines, okay? So these are these are submarines, okay, that have first strike and retaliatory strike capability. They're not designed to, like, attack other submarines. They're not designed to do special recon missions, okay? They're just designed to go in the water, fully loaded with nuclear missiles, and or probably some other kind of ballistic missiles if we needed them to have, like, harpoons or something to fire off, okay? But basically, nuclear missiles, in order to... This is Cold War stuff, lasting from the Cold War, and basically we have this in order to respond to a nuclear attack from, say, the Soviet Union that doesn't exist anymore. All right, okay? But Russia still has nuclear missiles, so I guess Putin and the boys, they got angry enough, they could aim them all at us, and some of them would get here, the rest of them probably wouldn't work right. But we would have these submarines there, and we could then destroy Russia and turn it into a parking lot. Whatever. Currently, in our fleet, now these are not just attack submarines, okay? We have 14 ballistic missile subs. 14 on active duty, man. Driving around the ocean. I mean, what are they doing? You know, it's not like Hunt for Red October. I mean, what are they seriously doing out there? They're just driving around. Just, I mean, what, what's their mission? Well, you're going to go out to, the, you know, the Marianas Trench, and you're going to turn around, you're going to come back. And you're going to do some drills while you're out there, make sure everybody knows what they're doing in case we got to fire these missiles, 
and then you got to turn around and come back. You know, and they're just going to keep doing it. You're going to go down to the Arctic, and you're going to do it. And, and you're, you guys are going to go over to the South America, and you're going to do it. And, I mean, 14 of them? 14 of them. It's crazy. Why do we need 14 of them? But that's just that's just the Ohio class, okay? We also have um, uh, these new Virginia class, okay, which are, we have three of those under construction, four more on order, okay? Um we have Seawolf class, which is our attack subs. We have we have three of those, okay? And then, you ready for this? Okay, ready? Because you thought it was a lot when I was talking about 14, but here we go, all right? We have 43 attack subs. 43 on active duty. Two of them, okay? Out of a, So there's 45, two are in reserve. They keep two docked up. 43 attack subs are floating around the ocean right now. Ask yourself a question. What the fuck are they doing out there? I mean, now listen, I understand. The Navy SEALs, they come in sometimes on submarine. And, you know, there's, there's guys, there's probably listening systems in some of these. They're spying on people with these attack subs. You know, they're playing war games. They're probably, like, doing some sort of spy missions and everything. It's cool. I understand. I don't understand why we have 43 of them. Could you not do it with 10? A dozen? I mean, it's nuts. It's crazy. And if you go through the history of the military right now, and if you look at everything that we have, I mean, I'm picking on the Navy, okay? But, I mean, if you look at the Air Force or the the Army or or the freaking, you know, maybe not the Marines, I don't know, because they always manage to go get by on not having too much. But my guess is they probably have their own freaking pork projects. It's way too much, man. It's way too much. And we could probably use to cut some of this down. And and, and, and and a lot of these things just don't need to be here. I mean, I don't understand what it is that we're preparing to fight against. I mean, some people be like, well, the Chinese are getting serious. The Chinese doesn't have a Navy. They, they, they borrowed an aircraft carrier from the freaking Russians and put some stuff in it, and they're driving it around out there. And it's not even a good aircraft carrier. It's got like a... Uh, I won't get into it, but I mean the thing is, there's nobody, there's nobody that's our enemy, you know, that's going to do anything to us. It's just like a show of force, and and it's like I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that we should be equal to what is out there. I mean, we don't want to have another like you know situation where we have five ships and they have five ships and all this, but at the same time. You know, if the Russians have, like, four ships that actually work, that they drive around, we don't need to have, like, a hundred ships out there. I mean, it's, it blows my mind. So, you know, Congress can't cut the defense spending on this sort of stuff because of all the freaking, you know, people sticking their hands in the cookie jar and trying to get theirs and everything. And... um we have these banks and everything, and I'll tell you, I mean, the thing is, is basically our government, you know, I, I say it, and it's, you know, it's one of these things where I feel like our, our politicians are very corrupt. And the reason I feel like our politicians are very corrupt, for instance, is one of the things they talked about on 60 Minutes um, a few weeks back was the fact that, you know, congressional members of Congress can get an inside tip from a business. Uh, somebody like Visa can come in and give them a tip and say, hey, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to, we're trying to get this law passed, and if this law passes, 
you know, it'd be really good for our company. It'd be really good for us if, you know, um, for instance, you made it so uh, we didn't, you know, have that restriction on our fees anymore on Visa, right? And um, Congress is allowed, you know, to take that information and they're allowed to go out and buy stock in the company and then pass the law that allows that company to have a really good day on the stock market. And there are actually people like that, you know, hedge bets against what Congress people are, are actually investing their money in. And this is how Congress actually comes out of office. Millionaires, okay? They're not getting paid that much from you and I. It's not that anybody's handing them a sack of cash under the table. What they're doing is they're doing it all legally because they've created the bills. For everybody else in the world, if you had an inside tip like this, it would be against the law. It's like insider trading. You're not allowed to do it. But Congress actually wrote the bills and gave themselves an exemption to it in order so they could go out and invest in companies that they're going to impact through the laws that they pass or potentially don't pass. So, you see where the problem is. And, you know, the wealthiest people in the country live in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's just the way it is. And there's all of these business and ventures and everything pouring all of this cash into the into the country, and, and all of the corporate interests are, are, are built into this. And the layman, uh, probably you that's listening to this, has found that his cash has been virtually dried up or not getting as much, you probably didn't get a raise, or you didn't get as much as you usually do, and you've been told that times are tough, and the small business owner is getting clobbered, and all of the small banks in the world shut their doors, and the big banks have record profits. And, um, you know, you, you kind of sit there and you say to yourself, well, you know, what the fuck? And meanwhile, the politicians will sit there and tell you, oh, well, the problem is, is that, the you know the the corporations need a tax break because they need to be able to invest more in the country and the taxes are too high. I mean it's bullshit. It's just fucking bullshit because when George Bush gave them the tax cut, right? The tax cut that I talked about at the beginning of the show when that tax cut happened, okay? The George Bush tax cut. The the corporate big guy companies, okay, all of the multinational companies, companies that are overseas, in the United States, removed 200, excuse me, removed 2 million jobs from the United States and moved them overseas, okay, that was after we gave them the tax cut, so leaving their tax cut it hasn't done anything for us. Now, they've come back and they said, hey, listen, you know, we have all of this money overseas. Microsoft is a perfect example. Um, they have like $60 billion in reserves. Most of that money is in foreign banks. They don't want to bring it over to the United States because they have to pay interest on it that's rather high. Taxes, basically. So... The idea is is that they're going to come back and they're going to say, "Listen, can we, you know, bring our money into the into the country one time? Just give us a a, a tax holiday, set the rate at like five percent, 
and then we'll bring our money in and we'll do good and we'll invest it in America. Because, you know, what good is all the money being overseas? Why don't we bring it into the United States and we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll invest it in the country and it'll create jobs, okay? Problem is, is that they did this before. They said the same thing before and it created no jobs. We gave them a tax holiday on all that money and the corporate interests, they don't create any jobs. So why is this? I, I'll tell you why it is. I mean, all you, have, you, 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 all you have to do is have, like, an understanding of the rich for a minute. The, 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 the mega wealthy. Don't think about the guy with the hammer that's working at his small job, you know, maybe making a million dollars a year, okay? Uh, and he's spread it out over all of his c- contracts and everything. That guy has probably depreciated his income so much that he actually, if he makes a million dollars, it's not really on his tax form, okay? The mega rich, the people from the, from the multinationals, all right? If you're very wealthy, okay, you're like the, you're like the Hiltons, okay? You have, you know, a hundred million dollars, okay? And you have, you have some business and you have some business ventures. If, if they get, Somebody says, oh, well, listen, uh, you're going to get an extra million dollars this year. And they're going to be like, oh, we're going to get an extra million dollars. Fabulous. Why is that? Well, buddy George Bush passed the tax cuts in office. So now you're going to get yourself an extra million because your taxes are going to be a little bit lower. Well, that's fabulous. Great. Well, we'll just go on a trip to Morocco then, and we'll just have a wonderful time, and we'll buy our daughter a wonderful, you know, wedding or something. And... You know, the thing is, is that none of that actually, you know, they don't spend any of it. They don't even see it. They don't care. Their lifestyles never change. There's accountants. There's $100 million in the bank. And these people all have, like, like a, like sort of a, a fixed sort of um, expense system. I mean, that's kind of what it means to be rich, because they want to maintain their rich lifestyle the rest of their lives. And I'm not talking about, like, the people that are on, like, cribs and shit that are just, like, you know, millionaires for a week before they blow all their money on a bunch of crap. I'm talking about, like, your standard rich people. Merv Griffin. Okay, Merv Griffin Entertainment created Wheel of Fortune, all this sort of stuff, you know. Uh, you always think this guy's going to be huge because he's had all this money. And they asked him about it, and they said, geez, it must be great to be so rich because you can you have all this money and you can do whatever you want. And he said, no, he goes, because basically I'm on a fixed income. He goes, I get uh, only a certain amount of money, and I can only spend so much money because my accountants take care of everything for me. Now, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's his money, and if he really wanted to, he could go and be like, look, I'm going to go buy, build a skyscraper, okay, with my money. And his accountants would be like, no. But see, nobody wants to do that when they're rich. People just want to maintain status quo. They want to know, just like if you did, if you, if you won like $10 million in the lotto, you're not going to go... And be like, well, I'm going to go blow it all right now on fucking nothing just because I can. You know, you're going to go to your accountant or whoever, your investment agent, and you're going to sit there and you're going to say, well, listen, how can I take this money and make it so it lasts me for the rest of my life? I mean, I want to live comfortably. I want to buy a house and TV and car and all this sort of stuff. You know, and have some nice clothes and stuff. But I mean, like, how do I then take this money and keep it going for the rest of my life? And the accountant's going to be like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to put this money in this investment and we're going to draw from it. And it's going to be on, you know, the interest and what it makes in the stock market. And you're going to have these different things and you're going to get these checks. And this is, you know, this is how much money you're going to get every, every month. That's what my mom actually does. My mom's not rich, but my mom's retired now and she saved up a lot of money and she has money in, in her Wells Fargo account and it comes out 
you know, in a monthly thing, and based on the stock market, she gets a check of the interest, but the rest of the cap, you know, the rest of the principal stays in the bank, etc., and she gets her social security and stuff. You know, it's enough for her to get by on. And rich people are the exact same way. Now, granted, their check is a lot larger. They can go out and do things with it. But what happens is, is that when you give these people a tax cut, okay, the accountant sees it. The people that, you know, the, you think Kim Kardashian has any idea what the Bush tax cut means to her? No, she's no freaking idea. You know, it doesn't show up to her. Nobody says to her, hey, now you got an extra million dollars or something. It doesn't happen. Basically, the accountants just say, okay, you know, this is where we've made these adjustments in here, and you're going to keep getting your check, and, you know, that's it. You know, that's how, where, it's where the money goes. So this is like the, the wealthiest people in the country are this kind of wealth. They, they sit on top of like a, a massive pile of cash. This is why Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and people can come out and say, look, why don't you go ahead and just raise our taxes? Because what the fuck do we care? I mean, we don't, you know, I've got a fucking $50 billion in the bank. If you're going to take some money out of it, it's not going to impact me because I'm only going to go to McDonald's after I'm on my way home from work and I'm still going to be able to buy McDonald's later. You know, I'm not going to go buy myself like a new ruby watch every day. I mean, it doesn't matter to them. Now, I'm not trying to convince you to raise taxes on anybody because I believe that there are a lot of loopholes that can be closed, and I believe that there is a lot of spending that Congress can do, and I think that the government gets enough money. I mean, I honestly do. And I've talked about why they should cut things in the military, etc. But at the end of the day, I think you have to have both. I think you do need to raise taxes on the wealthiest people because they have the most money, and I think that you need to basically cut the spending from all the other people, and I don't think that it's going to be that upsetting to anybody. I don't. I mean, I think that the Republicans are waving a flag, protecting the wealthy people purely out of ideology and not out of any sort of practical measurement. Because if you look at the practicality of it, two million jobs went overseas, nothing happened to the, to the nation except bad shit from rich people. So shouldn't they pay more? These banks and things that all collapsed from all of these rich people over here created this crisis, so shouldn't we, you know, just say you've got to pay like an extra 1% or 2% on your tax and you normally pay? Why not? I don't understand why they feel that they need to protect them because they feel like that they always go back to that one guy, like that Joe the Plumber guy or whatever, that's going to sit there and say, I can't afford to hire anybody anymore because I'm a small guy and I don't, and it's all bullshit. Okay, because it's like you don't understand anything about taxes. Let me, I'm going to explain really quick to you right here, too, about why that's bullshit. Okay, look, when you own a business, okay, you have expenses. And when you have expenses, these things are known as deductions. Okay, everything you have is like a deduction for all sorts of things. You deduct your office space, you deduct your power, your, your gas, your... When you drive your car, you deduct wear and tear. On your computer purchases, you deduct those. Everything is a deduction, okay? And you basically calculate all these deductions up, and it's a value, okay? So let's say that the dude like Joe the Plumber, let's just say, all right, that the guy made a million dollars, okay? So he would fall into this high tax bracket initially. He would be like, I fucking made a million dollars. Now I'm going to fall into this high thing, and I'm going to have to let people go. But that's not true, because what happens is, is that he makes that he makes that million dollars, but then he with he he subtracts his deductions from that money. Okay, so if he has two hundred thousand dollars in deductions, then he only made eight hundred thousand dollars that year, and that's what the government taxes against. That's the same as you and me and everybody else. That's how fucking deductions work, and for the most part. 
there was a Gao survey done, okay, which is a congressional survey done, and it was done a few years ago, and they and basically the the Congress had reports that you know people weren't paying taxes and things like that, so they tasked the IRS. They said to the IRS, "Listen, we're going to give you a committee, and we want you to go out and we want you to find out, um, you know, who's, you know, how many businesses are actually paying taxes, okay." And they came back and they said virtually nobody is. I mean, you can look this up on the internet. I'm not, you know, you can look this up. Virtually no corporations are paying taxes because basically they de- they they have a deductible and they just deduct it all away. Or if they're so big that they can't do that, like Microsoft, it's all overseas. Google's worse. I mean, Google's you know even even less taxes paid. It's all overseas. They keep all their money outside the country, and. You know, they go to places, and it's not like they go to some other places like, you know, Germany or something. They're going to places where there's, like, no tax, okay? Places that, like, you know, have, like, the tiniest tax. And it's not because, like, they're not investing that money there, right? I mean, if, if the idea is, well, if that money was in the United States, they'd invest it. Well, then how come they're not investing it in the freaking Bahamas? No, they just put it in the bank, they just stick it in the bank, man, you know? And so if Microsoft gets their $60 million, do you think that they're going to suddenly open up a new fucking company, like a new place in the United States and hire like 100,000 people to start coding? Of course they're not going to. They're going to take the money and they're going to go to India with it and they're going to open a new fucking business in India or a new business in China and hire those people because they're cheaper than they are here. So you have this you have this real disconnect between investing in the United States and investing in overseas and how to move the money in and out of this country and then you have the banks that are holding on to all this money and meanwhile the wealth of the individual you me the next guy keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking because um, everybody wants more and more out of us you know the gas prices go up anytime there's any sign of life in the economy the gas prices are going to just like leap just leap. I mean, get yourself a fuel-efficient car, man, because it's not going to stop. And um, basically, the country is going to be paralyzed like this for a very long time, and we're not going to get out of it. We're not going to, like, dig our way out of it. Congress may be able to fix the Medicare problem. Maybe. But it's not likely. And it's not likely in a big way. They'll probably just continue to, like, sort of make slight adjustments to it. Every so often, just slightly, slightly change it. So that the Medicare benefit basically gets like altered in such a way that it it's still all there, but it's just more difficult to use. You know, high deductibles or something probably. You know, making it so it's just really sort of limited. But at the same time, the government's going to be spending tons of cash into it, so the government's going to be you know mostly paralyzed in its own debts. And I don't see any way you're really going to be able to change it unless you get somebody that's very bold in, in, in Congress and in the President's office to be able to make radical changes to the way our country does business right now. And, you know, I don't really think that's going to happen anytime soon anyway, and I don't know if the people of the United States will put up with it. I mean, it's one thing that you can go in, you know, and you could say, oh, well, if the Republicans go into office, we could have the Paul Ryan plan and we could get rid of Medicare altogether. And then in that situation, you end up getting a voucher in the mail for, say, $300. And then you have to try and buy insurance that you can afford in order to get all of your medical care. But no insurance company in their right mind is going to try and insure people that are over 65. Because, first of all, they're all going to freaking die. And they all have the worst freaking medical conditions imaginable. 
So, um, you know, why on earth are you going to want to insure the people that you're basically going to make no money on, you know? I mean, that's the whole purpose of having Medicare, because the insurance companies just don't want to insure those people. So, what we're in right now is probably a situation where we're going to maintain this very slow slog um, sort of middle road, middle ground, um, indefinitely. I think that there is room for possible change, be it that there's always, you know, the potential of some marvelous new invention coming along, uh, the cure for cancer, robots becoming sentient, Lord knows. I mean, there's lots of possibilities. Um, Nothing that, you know, we're clued in on at the moment of anybody working on anything. Time travel is now possible. Um, but uh, it'll be like uh, Terra Nova. We'll all end up going in the past to live. Uh, or we could have a radical change in government. I mean, what we've seen with the Tea Party rise and everything is that Americans are sick of this shit, and they're very scared, and they're very worried about the future, not only of themselves, but also the future of their children. And everybody basically wants to have a job, go to work, be able to afford some things and have food on the table and live in security and safety. And, you know, um, the government is, you know, the capitalist government that we have is uh, uh, becoming too radical in the sense that it's becoming too, there's too many waves. It's too um, up and down and uh, the American people are getting really tired of it. There was a time in the United States where if you got your job, you had your job your whole life, and you didn't have to really worry about changing jobs or, or um, leaving your job unless you did something wrong. And then you usually just went up the street to the competitor's place to manage to stay in business, too. Um, and over the years, you know, job volatility and um, lack of, a, like, serious support and the costs of everything, um, people are finding that the American dream is very hard to maintain. And the ability to... Um, sort of plan out your future is uh, uh, extremely difficult, especially the older you get. And people are finding it hard to find jobs. And so, you know, it's not going to boil over into a revolution at this point, but it is going to boil over into something akin to it through political reform. I think that, you know, the rise of Ron Paul, the rise of the Tea Party, as things continue to get worse, people are going to continue to get more radicalized, which is dangerous, but... Um, it's better, I think, than the current system whereby Congress is doing nothing. And the president is not able to um, get Congress to come around. And we've, we've built in a system that is not about coming together on these issues and, and really fixing the problem. I mean, if the Republicans and the president simply got together and said, listen, we're going to raise taxes, fuck it raise taxes on everybody 1%, we would all be like, that sucks, but okay, because we all know there's a fucking problem. And then at the same time, they said, and we're going to cut, you know, I don't know what it would be. You can't say 1% of spending, because that's not right. But you would say, you know, we're going to cut some sort of um, significant piece of spending off of the bill. Then I think, seriously, most Americans would say both parties win. Everybody's fine. And if that gets us so that the government works again, 
you know, that the government is able to operate properly and not have these sorts of um, worries that we're going to be out of money and our, our um, financial rating goes down and all this other crap and we can actually put some investments into, you know, um, the infrastructure in this country that's proper, you know, fix the roads and the electricity and get the internet so, uh, you know, it's not $90 for 10 gigabytes of fucking download time. Um, you know, we can compete again on a world market and be able to have, like, the country grow in a positive direction. I think that's really possible. Why the fuck isn't it happening is purely politics, in my, in, in my opinion. And uh, our government, on all sides, has completely let us down. I, I don't subscribe to Democrats or Republicans. I think both parties are full of shit. And they're fucking us. And they're all in the pocket the pocket of um, corporate interests. And, you know, it's basically proven at this point. And everybody is just blind to it because, you know, everybody's so concerned about their own job and life and stuff that nobody is really able to sort of um, get involved and say, you know, hey, we gotta we got to do something about this. And... It's a shame, man. It's it's just a shame. It's it's basically the people that get into politics are people that are just trying to look for a fast buck and make a bunch of money. So, you know, it's not over yet. And it's not all doom and gloom, okay? I mean, for the most part, most Americans still have their homes. Most Americans still make their house payments all as normal. Um, most, you know, places are hiring. Uh, you know, there's jobs out there. They're just harder to get. It takes a long time now. Um, the competition is, you know, rougher and all this sort of stuff. And uh, But there's a lot of room out there to have um, innovation grow and um, make this country better, you know, and, and hard work and all this sort of stuff that um, maybe the country needs more of and a little less of uh, the sort of um, lifestyle that people have been living where they sort of feel like everything is sort of owed to them and that people need to sort of, you know, start working a little bit harder, a little bit more in order to get it. But I don't know. 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 I mean, it's it's worrisome. And, you know, going all the way back, sometimes you think, well, you know, some of those socialist systems, they didn't have these sorts of worries, at least at first. And then they crumbled and it went crazy. I mean, I don't think we're going into any sort of extremes like that. I don't think we're going to see any sort of Hitlers or anything rise to power. We're we're just not there, man. I mean, it, you know, the unemployment rate's not, not uh, high enough yet for that to be that kind of a thing. And the money problem isn't really that bad yet. But, you know, all you need is one more shake-up, really. You just need one more, like, flattening of the American people. One, like, really good financial collapse. And I think that that could be the, the turning point um, where people start getting desperate. It's one of those things as food prices continue to rise and fuel prices rise and people find less and less and crime goes up and security is becoming a problem, and communities can't afford um, all the things that they, they, they used to have, and so taxes will go up, and um, people will have less, and businesses will keep closing, that you just have this sort of very slow domino effect that's going to lead the country into a, a new state of poverty versus rich. You'll have the mega wealthy and the very poor, and uh, the middle class is just going to get um, more and more divided. More of the middle class will fall into the poor, and less of the middle class will fall into the wealthy. And I don't know. I mean, you know, it's something that, you know, as a nation, 
We just need to really have a dialogue and come up with a way to just stop, you know, trying to argue for one side of the issue and just agree that both sides need to happen so that we can get all of us on the right side again and just move forward. You know, and there's a lot of issues around that. I mean, we could talk about foreign trade markets and um, NAFTA and what all these things have done to us uh, and the World Trade Organization and um, China's investments in the United States and things. I mean, it's beyond the scope of this conversation. But at least hopefully now you have a better understanding of what happened to the market. And uh, you can look all this up on the Internet, of course, um, and you can see, uh, you know, in better detail of how... um, Don Cease and his family actually caused the collapse. No, I'm kidding. But you know, you get the idea. It's um, it, it's pretty. Uh, it was pretty in, pretty involved, and um, you know, you can get into all of the the what ifs and the wheres and all that kind of thing. But um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the banks have got all their money. Banks are rich out of their mind. Um, and people in the United States took a bath on it, and for some reason, we're you know in this weird sort of a stitch where we're um, not wanting to raise the taxes on them. I just don't understand it, man. I just don't get it. But that's it. Thanks. Good night.